Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. And uh, if my voice is a bit cracked, excuse me, I was in a very loud bar yesterday, I had to shout to be heard and so my voice is broken. So bear with me for this episode as it slowly heals. So this week we have the Ubuntu desktop team sharing their vision for the Ubuntu desktop. We have a big update to Budgie, which introduces the first version of their own window manager and compositor. And we have NVIDIA's BIOS checks being broken on Windows, which could or not positively impact fast drivers on Linux for NVIDIA GPUs. And we also have Asahi Linux getting a fully conformant OpenGL driver for M1 and M2 Max. So as always, all the links I use to create this episode are in the show notes and all the links to support the show are also in the show notes if you want it to continue. So now let's get into it. So, first we have the Ubuntu desktop team sharing an interesting blog post about their vision for the Ubuntu desktop as a whole. This is something that I find interesting because it's a criticism that I have leveled against Ubuntu time and time again that their new releases seem to be pretty directionless. Uh, They don't seem to have a strong focus on anything specific. They just grab all the features of GNOME, they reapply their customization, they replace some newer versions of programs by older versions of programs from GNOME because they probably didn't want to port their patches to the new version. And that's about it. They generally don't introduce that much new stuff apart from the new installer that was released in, uh, I think it was in 23.04. And that's it. And they don't feel like they have a plan for where they want to go. So having this blog post explaining the plan was pretty interesting because yeah, there's a plan. So they started by stating Ubuntu's important position for the Linux desktop. Uh, They say it's the most popular distribution for developers, according to a Stack Overflow uh, survey. Uh, 27% of developers entering that survey use Ubuntu, which puts it in the number one position. It is apparently the most used distro for gaming, which you might not feel like it, because if you look at the Steam survey, generally SteamOS is first. But that's only because they display the most recent version of Ubuntu only. If you add up all the versions of Ubuntu in the Steam survey, it's actually the most used. And they apparently also have at least 6 million monthly active users, which is very small if you compare that to macOS or to Windows. But it's still a sizable chunk and it's just based on updates downloaded from the Ubuntu repos for the Ubuntu desktop specifically. So it might not include every single Ubuntu user because some might be behind firewalls or stuff like that and might or might download from their own mirrors of the repos instead. And it also obviously doesn't include every Ubuntu derivative or or probably every Ubuntu official flavor either. So first, in the post, they define the values of the Ubuntu desktop and they express that they want to move away from shipping a few features haphazardly each release and instead focus on shipping building blocks that are related to each other or related to a longer term vision or goal, which is exactly what I've wanted them to do for a while and pretty much how they used to do things back in the day uh, when they started implementing Ubuntu One, the Ubuntu Store or the Unity Desktop or, or just iterating on their theme to try and bring like the best GNOME 2 theme they could. So it's, it's pretty interesting to see them doing that. Now, what's the vision exactly? It's pretty unclear. Uh, They talked more about the values of Ubuntu and the Ubuntu desktop, the values that they want to achieve, 
and specific features related to these values more than a grand plan. They're not saying like, okay, in five years, we want to move away from GNOME and build our own thing, or we want to move to an immutable distro entirely, or we want to, I don't know, completely change how packages are handled, or we want to have a fully snapped up distro. They're not saying that. What they're saying is they want to focus on choice, as in choice for hardware to run Ubuntu on, uh, in quality with a desktop that works well and is well-tested, support to make sure that everything is well-tested and well-supported, enjoyment, which they seem to really associate with downloading apps, performance, privacy, security, and seamless integration, uh, being more focused towards deploying a fleet of Ubuntu desktops or servers. Uh, so they, are list they listed a few things that they're working on for each of these values, uh, like turn like having an option for full disk encryption in their new installer, uh, which I thought was already here, but apparently not. Uh, they are bringing NetPlan to the Ubuntu desktop to make it easier to manage your Ubuntu fleets. Uh, they are going to be working on new permission prompts for applications that require punctual permissions. Uh, something that I said would be a good idea for Flatpak apps, for example, but I guess they're bringing that to Snaps, uh, which would be, for example, an app that needs to access a file, which the current permissions doesn't allow it to, uh, it would bring a permission prompt like, hey, do you want to grant temp temporary permissions to this app to access this file? Yes or no? That's pretty useful. If your app doesn't use portals uh, and, and just doesn't have to ask for permission because the portal accesses the file, not the app itself. Uh, or they're also talking about, well, they're not talking, they're mentioning the new graphical app store that they're planning for Ubuntu 23.04, which will obviously prioritize snaps over dev packages. Uh, they also mentioned the new Ubuntu Core desktop, which is an immutable distro using snaps to provide applications compared to the usual distros, mostly providing Flatpak because, well, it's Ubuntu, so it's got to be snaps. So... Personally, I'm not sure I see a grand strategy for the Linux desktop, personally, uh, but it's always difficult to put such a grand strategy in place when you're building your desktop on top of an existing project, like, for example, GNOME in the case of Ubuntu. So you don't necessarily control all the features uh, that are shipped in your desktop. The most you can do is remove certain things or try to add some more with extensions. It's still good to see that there is some thought put behind the Ubuntu desktop, because as I said, that's a criticism I had against Ubuntu for a while. They just felt kind of directionless. Uh, they felt like they were going with the flow. Uh, so the fact that they do have a plan to focus on specific areas is very reassuring. Now, does that mean that Ubuntu is still something I would recommend? Probably not, because I really don't like snaps on the desktop. Uh, as a solution, I think they're just diluting the efforts and they should focus on Flatpak because Flatpak is just a better format than Snap for desktop apps. For server, sure, flat Snap is good, but for desktop, there's no comparison. Flatpak is miles ahead and, and everyone's working on it. Um, do I feel like Ubuntu does everything right? No. Do I feel like Canonical is a reassuring company? Obviously not. So I'm still not recommending Ubuntu to most people, but it's good to at least see that they have a plan and that they want to bring a specific vision. Whether it's a vision I want to use or recommend, that has nothing to do with it, but at least they do have a plan. Now, let's talk about Budgie. They got a new release, version 10.8. It's not Budgie 11, which will be Wayland only and probably move away from most GNOME technologies. This is still far away in the future. So 10.8 is still GNOME-based. Uh, it's just an evolution of what existed. But it is the first release to include Magpie, which is 
their own window manager and the basis for their future Wayland compositor. Uh, basically, they used Mutter, which is the GNOME compositor, uh, but as GNOME moves more and more towards Wayland, they sort of broke a few X11-related things that Budgie used to rely upon, and so they decided to use Mutter 43 instead of Mutter 44, which did not have these regressions, and based their first release of MacPy on that. The next releases of MacPy won't be based on Mutter, uh, they're gonna use something else, but it's still going to use the same name. Uh, so basically, it's a fork of Mutter based on supporting X11 because the current version of Budgie is X11 only. Uh, and of course, when they want to move to Budgie 11, when they want to move to Wayland, because Budgie 11 will not support X11 any longer, when they move to Wayland fully, they will have a dedicated compositor that they maintain themselves. Now, on top of this change, Budgie 10.8 brings more details to the password prompts. Uh, when an application requires super user rights, they display a little pop-up for you to type your password in. And now they will tell you what app opened that password prompt, which is something that should be in every password prompt on GNOME, on KDE, or whatever. I'm pretty sure it's not right now, uh, and it should be because, well, it's a good security feature. It's just a bit of text and an icon, and it just lets you make sure that it's the app you're using, demanding your password instead of something running in the background that you might not know about. You will also now be able to control power profiles in Budgie in the battery indicator, so moving to performance, battery saver, or balanced mode. And the system tray is now based on the status notifier specification, which means that these pesky tray icons should look better and should scale better with high DPI displays. Now, tray icons are always hard to do on Linux. There is no one API that everyone is using, so everyone is basically implementing a mix of the old, um, how, how were they called, uh, the, the Ubuntu ones, like the app indicators and some older system tray notifications, the status notifier stuff. Everything is mixed together, and so icons generally don't have the same size, the same look. Uh, they're not enforced in monochrome, for example, which means that this area of your screen looks disjointed and weird. So it, it's good that they're at least moving to one specific standard and, and supporting like newer features, like high DPI displays. The default theme for Budgie is also changed slightly. It moved to a light green instead of the usual blue. Uh, they used blue previously because that was the color for Solus, and Budgie was very tied to Solus. Solus was probably the only distribution that shipped Budgie by default. Uh, you had unofficial community spins. But now that Budgie is a way more separate project and is starting to see uh, support for other uh, community editions of various distros, uh, they want their own identity, and since the Budgie logo moved to this little green wing on the little bird icon, then they're moving to the same green for the desktop. It's not a big change, and you're probably still able to change it. Uh, they reorganized the main menu as well, in terms of how apps are placed into various categories, like they fused some categories together because like, they serve no purpose being separate. Uh, you now have the trash applet, which was previously a third-party applet, is now part of the desktop officially, and there are a lot more smaller changes. So it's cool to see Budgie receiving some updates. I used Budgie for a while, back when I used Manjaro, it's been like three or four years. Uh, I used Solus for a while as well, and I'm very interested to see where they're gonna be moving with Budgie 11. Uh, basically, what I'd like to see is more desktops that are, that are their own thing. Uh, for now, Budgie is a modified version of GNOME, basically. It uses most GNOME's technologies, a bunch of GNOME apps, and 
it's not really its own thing. Uh, it, it's it's very close to, to how GNOME works. So I, I want to see more desktops being their own thing. So you will have GNOME with its own vision, you will have Plasma 6 with its own vision, you will have the Cosmic Desktop with its own vision, and you will have Budgie, again, with its own vision, and then some other, like, less well-updated... Well, you, I guess you also have Cinnamon, which is not really GNOME anymore, but still kind of GNOME as well. And then you've got, like, the older stuff, like Mate or XFC, but they're slowly becoming sort of irrelevant as they're really trailing behind in terms of updates and Wayland support and stuff like that. So I'm not sure they have enough developer interest to really be maintained in the long run. We'll have to see. But what I want to see is those desktops with their own approach, their own vision, and really being different. Uh, not just being, hey, this is GNOME with five extensions slotted on top of it, but something really unique. Uh, and that's where Budgie's heading, which I think is really good. Now, since we're talking about desktop environments, let's do a little roundup of what's new in KDE and GNOME. Uh, so for Plasma 6, they have decided to go with tap to click being enabled by default for your touchpad, which is, I think, a very good choice because for accessibility, it can be very good to just have to tap and not to press a touchpad. And also, that's how I use my touchpad. Personally, I really never physically click it. Uh, so having tap to click by default saves me a trip to the settings. It's good for me, at least. Uh, they also brought the usual improvements to the yet-unreleased version of Plasma. Uh, like, for example, copying text in an x Wayland app will now persist in the clipboard even after you close the x Wayland app uh, in the Wayland session, which is, I guess, pretty good. Uh, they have a rewritten printer settings panel to be more coherent with the current style of the settings. And they have better-looking icons in Dolphin when using fractional scaling that are going to be scaled better, and so they are not going to look pixelated anymore. Uh, they also released KDE Gear 23.08, which is basically the compilation of most of KDE's official and maybe even third-party apps. Uh, in this update, to most of these apps, there's Calendar, uh, which is a calendar and contacts and tasks manager. So it's being renamed to Mercuro with a K for Mercuro, because every KDE app has to have a K in the name. Uh, but since it doesn't just handle calendars anymore, they change the name. I'm not a fan of this one, Mercuro. I don't think it's very explicit. I much prefer application names that are very descriptive, like KDPIM or KDMail or KD Calendar or whatever. But just, just don't use weird names that have nothing to do with what the app is doing. It makes them basically impossible to research. It's not great. Uh, so they do plan to improve this app further, though, because it's already very, very good. It's probably one of my favorite apps on KDE. It looks awesome, it's very powerful, it does a lot of things, uh, but it's still very simple in terms of interface. And so they plan to add email capabilities to this app as well, which basically would turn it into a full replacement to the KDE personal information management suite uh, with Kmail, uh, contacts, and, and stuff like that, K-Organizer which is getting very long in the tooth, uh, this old suite. It still works, but it's very messy. The interface isn't clear. Like, it's very complex to configure an email account in there. It's not easy to use. So if Calendar can bring, well, Mercuro, sorry, can bring their design flair to the email manager, it will be very, very cool. Now, there's also an update to Tokodon, which is the Mastodon client for KDE. Uh, it now looks a lot better. It has a smoother scrolling timeline as well. And it now has tools to manage the users and the instances that you might want to federate with or, or not federate with uh, if you host your own Mastodon instance. So it's not just a Mastodon client 
for interacting with Mastodon as a user, but it also lets you sort of manage your own Mastodon instance, which is really cool. Uh, Kate, the text editor, now supports GLSL as a programming language, and it includes the option for a QML language server when you're coding with Qt6. And the screenshot manager also now lets you select the annotations that you've made with a nice little rectangle selection around it, so you can now move them around easily while you edit the screenshot, which makes the app a lot more powerful and pretty cool as well. Now on the GNOME side of things, uh, the developers have shared the porting guide for extensions uh, for GNOME 45 because this version moves to ESM uh, for all the extensions, so every extension will need to either be repackaged slightly or rewritten uh, a bit. It's shared just a month before the release of the new version. I really hope that's enough time for extension developers. From what I've seen, it doesn't necessarily require that much work, but since extensions are very varied and, and written very differently from one another, it might be a pain for a lot of developers. I hope that's the final big change they make to the extension system, because seriously, GNOME extensions are awesome. Like I recently just made a video, I published it I think two days ago, uh, about GNOME extensions. There are some amazing things that completely transform how you use your, your, your desktop, like from tiling window managers to circular mouse-driven menus to completely different alt-tab window switchers. It's super vibrant as an ecosystem of extensions, but if they keep breaking these every release, people are really going to get annoyed and they are going to stop making these extensions, which sucks. Gnome clearly wants those extensions because every release they modify the API that exists to make them. So please settle on something and keep it up to date. Stop breaking it with every release of Gnome. It's very annoying. I hope it's the last big change for this thing and they will stop destroying the work of developers every, every six months. It's really not very respectful uh, to your developer community, I think. So please, please let it be the last big change and let extension developers update their stuff instead of rewriting it or, or having to fix it in like the nick of time, like they only have a month to rewrite everything. Please, please go. Now, in terms of applications, there's also a new app called ASCII Draw, uh, letting you draw shapes, diagrams or charts in the ASCII art style. Uh, there's a lot of pre-made shapes and fonts and line styles that you can use. Uh, you've got Parabolic, the video downloader, which can now download each chapter for a video uh, separately as an individual file. And it can also use sponsor block to avoid downloading the sponsored mentions for videos. Something that yeah, I have mixed feelings about, as always, because, well, you're basically stripping out the way for the creator to make money, which mm, never really liked, but okay, it's, it's a personal choice. So it's a relatively minor week for work on KDE and GNOME and their apps. They're both obviously working on the next release of their desktop environment. Uh, I personally cannot wait for GNOME 45 and Plasma 6, although, of course, Plasma 6 will arrive a lot later, probably not before the end of the year or the beginning of 2024. Uh, and, of course, Plasma 6 looks like the bigger release because, well, it's been in, the de in development for a while now and it's obviously going to change more stuff than GNOME 45, but since I'm still predominantly a GNOME user, uh, I'm excited for what GNOME 45 can bring. Now, let's talk about drivers, and one of the main reasons uh, the open-source driver support for NVIDIA GPUs is so bad is because NVIDIA uses certain checks for specific BIOS signatures to ensure that people 
don't flash weird biases onto graphics card and try to sell them as, I don't know, an, an RTX 2070 when in fact it's a, it's a 1080 or, or whatever. Uh, and it's obviously to protect their stuff because Nvidia just doesn't like people messing around with their, with their hardware. Uh, so this also means that if you don't have the official drivers, uh, you can't really take advantage of all the power of the GPU because you can't really pass that check at startup. Uh, open source drivers just can't manage to pass this. And so they're limited to the boot clock speeds of the GPU, which are generally very low. Uh, so now this BIOS lock has been broken by tools developed for Windows which lets users flash their new BIOS images onto their NVIDIA GPUs. They can raise the power limits on older GPUs like the 900 series, and they can control voltages and fan curves and everything. Uh, basically, this new, this new, it's not new, this BIOS lock started, I think, with the 900 series, uh, the GTX 900, and then all the RTX uh, series as well. Uh, previous cards are very well supported with the Nouveau drivers because they did not have uh, this kind of lock. Uh, so now, the fact that this BIOS lock has been broken might be useful for the Nouveau driver developers to help understand how to circumvent or how to pass these boot checks and to finally give access to the full power and the higher clock speeds of all recent NVIDIA GPUs. But it is still a legal gray area. As far as I know, the code for how the tool was able to break that BIOS check uh, hasn't been published. It's, it's just a binary Windows app. You don't really have the source code yet. They haven't really explained how they did it. And even if they did, is it legal to bypass this? Does it fall under uh, fair use or does it fall under you broke a specific DRM protection uh, for the hardware and so that's not legal? It all depends on how NVIDIA views this. Honestly, I'm not sure how they would react if the Nouveau drivers were there. I don't think they have reacted to the new Windows tool yet. Uh, so maybe they don't really care. But yeah, depending on how the method works, uh, they probably will send the cease and desist and ask people to stop doing that. So will the Nouveau drivers take advantage of this method? I'm not sure. Uh, they've generally been relatively conservative in what they use to reverse engineer NVIDIA drivers because I guess they don't want any legal problems. Now, still on the NVIDIA front, they have released the source code for their developer toolkit called NVAPI on GitHub. Uh, so this should help a few projects like DXVK NVAPI to take advantage of NVIDIA-specific features on NVIDIA GPUs. Now, apparently it's not pure source code. Uh, there are some libraries provided as binary files, but it's still pretty good to see NVIDIA dropping more and more source code uh, that seems to be really helping for the development of a Vulkan open source driver and stuff like that. So yeah, I guess it's not great, it's not perfect, but it's still better than nothing. Now, still on the topic of drivers, we have news about Asahi Linux, which is the distro that steadily is reverse engineering drivers for Apple Silicon Macs. They apparently now have an OpenGL ES 3.1 conformant driver for M1 and M2 CPUs, which means that it officially conforms to the full specification made by the Kronos Group, which is the entity that manages OpenGL, and it passes the entire test suite. That's interesting because it's something Apple doesn't do. Uh, Apple dropped support for OpenGL, and so on macOS, Apple does not have official OpenGL drivers for their own computers, which means that the Asahi team managed to do something that even Apple doesn't do, 
so that's pretty cool. So as I said, this support works for M1 and M2 CPUs. The update is already available to all Asahi Linux users or all Fedora Asahi Remix users because like the patch sets are shared and the driver will of course be upstreamed in the future. So any distro using any version of the Linux kernel will have it. Uh, but it still needs the Apple DRM kernel driver to be merged as well. DRM for Direct Rendering Manager, not for Digital Rights Management. Uh, it's not like the, the nouveau DRM, it's a term for like handling display hardware. Uh, so they need this driver to be merged in the kernel as well, so it's still a little ways off. As with all Asahi support, uh, like they're only upstreaming stuff to the kernel when it's reasonably stable and works well. So right now, if you do want to run uh, Linux on an M1 or M2 Mac, you do need to use Asahi or Fedora Asahi. Any other Linux distro will only have like the most bare bones of support. Chances are your keyboard, your display output, stuff like that won't be supported. Only the CPU will be supported and maybe not even the GPU part. So yeah, if you have an M1 Mac or an M2 Mac, you want to move to Linux, use Asahi. And even then, not everything will work right out of the box. It's still very experimental in terms of support. But I will be working on a review or at least a look at how well it works currently on my M1 Pro MacBook Pro that I bought and have done nothing with apart from two videos. Uh, so stay tuned to the YouTube channel to see that and, and learn how well Azahi works and if it could work for you right now or if you're better off waiting depending on what you need exactly from your hardware. Now let's talk about Firefox. Uh, they're bringing an interesting feature to improve the migration process from Google Chrome, including Chrome's extensions. Uh, Mozilla has basically supported web extensions functionality for a while. Uh, they, it's the same standard than Gno uh, Chrome, sorry, not Gnome, that Chrome uses for its own extensions. Uh, and so this is in Firefox. Uh, it's still experimental. You need to enable it in the about config page. Uh, but you can turn on a new property called browser.migrate.chrome.extensions, uh, which means that if you go into the settings or if you go in the menu bar and you go import data, you select to import data from Chrome, you will see a new checkbox that lets you import Chrome extensions. Except it's not really importing uh, the Chrome extensions. Mozilla has basically created a list of, app of extension pairs. Uh, so if they detect uh, uBlock Origin from the Chrome Web Store, they match that with uBlock Origin on the Firefox extensions portal. So what they're doing is not transferring the extension from Chrome to Firefox, they're actually downloading the Firefox version of the extension, if it exists, and it has been uh, added to the list of extension pairs. Uh, so you cannot install Chrome extensions from, from Chrome's Web Store portal, uh, it's not really porting over the extension and it's also not keeping your settings, your whitelist or block list and stuff like that. So it's not really Chrome extension compatibility, it's more an additional feature to help you migrate from Chrome, but it's not exactly copying your extensions over. Uh, for now they only support 73 extensions, which is still not nothing. Uh, that includes uBlock Origin, Ghostory, Bitdefender, LastPass and a lot more. And of course, they plan to expand this list in the future. I think it might for now give a false impression that everything will be smooth sailing, that you will just import everything and your Firefox browser will be the exact same as your Chrome browser. As long as you don't support all extensions, this is not going to be the case and I think it's going to be a bit deceiving for users. But it's good to have this kind of stuff to smooth over the transition from Chrome to Firefox, which everyone should do. Like, stop using Google Chrome. At least use another Chromium-based browser but don't use Google Chrome, it's the worst spyware browser ever.
Now, Ubuntu 23.04 might be four months old, but the Deepin variant just saw a new release, like, like Ubuntu Deepin 23.04 releases in August, so it should be 23.08, not .04. Uh, th the reason behind this is it's not an official flavor of Ubuntu, it's a community thing, it's not officially endorsed by Ubuntu, but if you like the Deepin desktop, but you don't want to use the Deepin distro because you have concerns about spyware, or you don't like the older base they use, or you don't like their own app store that is actually very weird if you don't live in China, then I guess it's a good option. Uh, it also comes with snaps, even though you're, it, it is not obligated to, to ship them because it's not an official Ubuntu flavor, uh, but it, do, it does come with snaps. And so that new version comes with all the internals of Ubuntu 23.04 and the May release of Deepin, which should be the latest one for their desktop, uh, with a bunch of improvement to the default apps that Deepin uses. It hasn't moved to the new Ubuntu installer, it's sticking to Calamares for now, uh, but yeah, it's, it's okay. Personally, I'm not necessarily a big fan of Deepin as a desktop. It looks really good on screenshots and when you use it, but it's so limiting, like all the default apps are so limited in terms of features. And, and keep in mind, I'm a GNOME user predominantly, so you might be thinking, oh, this guy, this guy really wants to use limited stuff. No, uh, if you compare Deepin apps to the GNOME ones, Deepin apps are bare bones. They do almost nothing. Like, I think the one I really liked was their email client, but everything else was just so limited. You can't do anything apart from the default settings in these applications. Uh, and, of course, since it's its own desktop, if you launch anything that isn't a Deepin app, it's not going to look well integrated at all with the rest of the desktop. Like, they have a, a KDE theme and a GNOME theme, but they don't look anything like their own uh, Deepin application. So, yeah, not a big fan of Deepin, but if you are and if you want to use this, then at least you have another option uh, than using uh, the official Deepin distro, which... I mean, apart from concerns about being a Chinese distro, if you don't care about that, it's still using a very old Debian base, and so you might not have the best hardware support with this thing. Now, it looks like the recent Red Hat drama has been kind of good to Alma Linux. Uh, they talked a little bit in an interview about how this has affected them, and they reported a big increase in terms of financial support. Uh, they didn't give give specific details about how much money they're, they're generating with the distro, uh, but the number of people who would donate $5 has more than quadrupled since Red Hat started putting restrictions on the source code of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And apparently Alma Linux also received more financial backing from corporations, which I guess is really good for them. Uh, they also say that working with CentOS Stream's code instead of using like the official Red Hat Enterprise Linux source code as was published before, they say it hasn't really been that much of a problem. Uh, they say that in practice, CentOS Stream's code contains everything that will eventually land in Red Hat Enterprise Linux, and so rebuilding Red Hat is not that complicated, less easy, but not that difficult. Uh, and they also talked about moving from the bug-for-bug bug compatibility model to just an ABI compatibility model, which is a transition they're making. Uh, it means that they're not a complete clone of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Uh, they don't force themselves to follow every bug, every single update that Red Hat makes, or they don't have to wait for Red Hat to update something or fix a problem for it to be fixed on their end. 
Uh, they're just basically going to be compatible with every single package and every single application made for Red Hat, but they won't follow it exactly uh, to, uh, to, to the exact patch set. And so they say it lets them provide a stable distribution while freeing them from waiting for Red Hat to apply specific patches, which gives them more freedom and basically more independence in terms of their distribution. So it's, it's interesting to see that the move from Red Hat to actually lock the source code of Rail behind a paywall. Uh, you can still rebuild it, but you have to look through comments and patch sets and stuff like that. Uh, so, so this move seems to actually have favored their community-based clones instead of harming them. Uh, because Rocky Linux said, we don't care, we're still going to be able to do it. We have plenty of options to still grab the exact source code that they can't lock behind the paywall. Uh, Alma Linux said, okay, well, we're just moving to ABI compatibility and they've apparently multiplied by four the donations from people and gained more backing. And SUSE even launched a, their own, well, is going to launch their own rail clone as well. And they've allied with Oracle to provide this source code for free, completely open source for everyone. So yeah, that, <laughs> it's always fun when something like that completely backfires and trying to protect your revenue actually will end up hurting it. Uh, it's, yeah, don't be the bad guy and you won't have these kind of problems. Now, we also have an update to LibreOffice. Usually I would not mention that specifically because, well, it's LibreOffice, like it's an office suite, not everyone needs one and it's not necessarily super interesting. But version 7.6 is actually pretty good uh, and I wanted to talk about a few things that they added. Uh, so the first feature that caught my eye was support for zoom gestures using touchpads in the main view, which is great because when you're using LibreOffice on a laptop, uh, for example, a 13 inch or 14 inch, being able to zoom inside the document is great. And zooming with a touchpad is a lot easier and smoother than pressing control plus trying to scroll up on a touchpad because obviously you have less control than with a, a scrolling wheel. Uh, or trying to press control and plus or aiming for the little plus or minus button in the bottom right corner on a small screen is not easy. So touchpad gestures inside of applications are really, really welcome. So it's good to see that they're putting some attention to this. Uh, but LibreOffice also now supports document themes, uh, which means that you can very easily change the whole look of a document, which is very useful. Uh, even for companies, uh, I've worked at a lot of companies that had big redesigns and so we had to move most of our documents to a new theme. And when your Office Suite doesn't support that, you have to modify each document individually. Uh, but now in LibreOffice, you can export a theme for ODF and Microsoft Office documents, and you can apply them on the fly, which means that it will be way easier to change how a document looks in just one click. Really, really useful. Uh, you will also now keep your user-defined print ranges when you copy a spreadsheet to another document, which is also very useful. Uh, comments in Calc, you can now customize their look and their formatting. You can now better import CSV in Calc uh, because they will support numbers in scientific notation. And exporting PDF in uh, LibreOffice Impress and Draw now supports free text annotation and ink if you annotated a document with a stylus, for example, which is also really good. And finally, they've improved how text scaling is handled. Uh, they now separate text scaling between uh, the spaces between the paragraphs and lines and the font scaling itself, uh, which first gives you more options to actually use the space on your page better, but it also means that it works in a similar way to Microsoft Office, 
which should improve compatibility with these documents, which is always good because unfortunately Microsoft Office and their like semi-open but not really open document format is still the default for a lot of people. And so going forward, LibreOffice will change its uh, release scheme, uh, the numbering scheme. The next version will not be 7.7, but it will use the year.month numbering format. Uh, that seems to be adopted more and more in the open source world. Uh, so the next release might be, I don't know, 23 dot, uh, who cares, 10 or 11 or 12. Uh, but it's basically going to be the same kind of numbering as Ubuntu and, uh, and the KDE gear compilation and stuff like that. So it's a solid update to the Office Suite. Yes, I am a nerd. I get excited about updates to productivity software. Uh, but I think it's a big enough update to be covered in here. Okay, and now let's finish this with the gaming news. Uh, so first we have reports of people getting banned on Apex Legends when they're playing on Linux or the Steam Deck. Uh, Apex Legends uses Easy Anti-Cheat, which is supposed to be supported on Linux. It actually was. It actually worked very well with Linux. But some Linux players are still apparently being banned. And this apparently has already happened earlier this year, but most bans were overturned by Electronic Arts. But this time it looks like they're sticking. Uh, EA answered to a lot of comments saying that no, they took the correct action in banning the accounts and they were effectively banned. Uh, which sucks, because you can't really have your cake and eat it too. If you want to be sold and have like the verified tag on Steam Deck, then you can't really ban the players that use it to play your game, Electronic Arts. Uh, it's, it's completely weird and stupid. And why would you start banning people using Linux when you have turned on the Linux compatibility for Easy Anti-Cheat and when you actually are verified on the Steam? I don't know, it's really weird. Uh, I guess it's just EA doing EA things. They're a terrible company. Uh, we also have some updates for SteamOS this week, uh, notably a new slider for color temperature to complement the color vibrance slider that will be added in SteamOS 3.5. Uh, so you will now have two sliders, one to increase the saturation of color, something you could already do with a Decky Loader plugin, uh, very useful. But now you will also be able to tweak the white balance. So you can have like warmer colors or, or bluer colors if you want. Basically, it kind of works like the night light mode or the night mode of the Steam Deck, uh, but you can make that change permanent all the time or adjust it on the fly, depending on the game and the tone you want to give to the game, which is really nice. Uh, not sure if these settings will be on a per game basis or, or system wide, I hope. They're on a per game basis, just like the performance settings, uh, that would be better, but I'm not sure if it's stored in there. Now, we also have a new version of GE Proton, which is the community fork of Valve's Proton. Uh, the new version disables the use of FSR by default to upscale games. It apparently created some problems. It limited the maximum in-game resolution in some games, so they disabled it. You can still enable it yourself using the usual, I think it's wine D3D underscore full screen equals one or something like that. Uh, it's an option like that, that you can add in your game's properties in Steam and it will launch using FSR by default. Uh, this new release also now supports Titanfall, Persona 5 Strikers, Shin Megami Tensei 3, or Assetto Corsa. It also comes with the latest Wine, DXVK, and VKD3D for the best performance possible. Personally, I haven't really needed to use Proton GE to run anything, as all the games I want to play just run with the regular Proton version, but I will need to try it uh, and see if it improves performance in some games that still struggle a little bit uh, on my SteamOS gaming console. 
Now for Roblox players, it looks like you're going to be able to play on Linux again through Wine. Developers have been working to update the game since the new client broke the game on Linux and they shared a screenshot of Roblox running on Manjaro. So they will make an official announcement when everything is ready to be published to the stable version of the game. But if you or your kids enjoy Roblox, it's all good news. I personally never played it. Uh, it kind of looked like a gambling, weird, like, pay everything arena. Uh, it didn't really felt like spending a lot of money on this thing. It felt like a trap for kids uh, to, to extract money from their parents. Uh, but I can see the appeal of the whole sandbox of mini games uh, sort of design, like some kind of more varied Minecraft. Uh, uh, why not? Like, why not? And it also looks like the Steam Deck now has 11,000 games officially playable. Uh, that's 7,254 games with the playable rating and 3,753 with the verified rating. And you also have uh, 3,296 games marked as unsupported, which means that they don't run at all. So as a reminder, this doesn't cover every single game on Steam. Some haven't been reviewed yet. A lot of them haven't been reviewed yet. Uh, and of course, some titles marked verified might have a few problems that Valve has not seen during testing, especially on the deck in terms of performance. But it is still an enormous amount of game available for the deck. It basically makes the Steam Deck the console with the biggest library probably of all time, which is really, really cool. Okay, so this will conclude this podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, if you want to learn more about any of these topics, all the links are in the show notes. And as always, if you want to support the show to keep it going, all the links are in the show notes as well. So thanks for listening, and I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye!